Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. This episode, we spoke with Katie Neff. Katie served as a combat engineer officer in the Marine Corps after graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. She completed the U.S. Army Sapper course while setting a couple of firsts in the school's history. After multiple combat deployments overseas, Katie rounded out her eight years of service by commanding a unit at Marine Corps boot camp at Paris Island, forging the next generation of Marines. Katie's post-military path took her through some time of personal reflection and education. She has since worked in the National Park Service and on several social enterprise projects. She also volunteers with an organization enabling veterans to be more involved in civics and politics. Katie's an incredibly driven person with an undying passion for service and helping the greater good. The leadership mission statement probably resonates with most people, which is, who do I see myself as at my best self? But the shadow mission is about, who am I when I stop being my best self? Because we all have that. We hope you enjoy our conversation, and thanks for listening. Uh, Katie, if you ever wanted to start your own podcast, you're probably like halfway there by now with all the uh, remote audio set up. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'll just hang on to what you guys gave me. <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead. Ben will be thrilled about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks for being with us. It's episode seven. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Katie, you're from Baltimore? I am. Yeah. Born and raised. Uh, are you a big fan of The Wire? Because we're huge fans of The Wire. Uh, I am. And I always get asked that question. I did not grow up in the city, so it sounds a lot more hardcore than I really am. I grew up in a suburb outside of Baltimore City. But oh. I was on the line. So, you know, if I really want to make someone think I'm tough, I kind of blur that a little bit. You tell them you're from the terrace? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you were in the Marines, but you went to the Naval Academy, which probably, I mean, you know, not everyone knows that Marines come from the Naval Academy. Right. So when you're there, when do you make that choice? And do you, there's got to be some sort of like rivalry while you're there, of course, right? Yeah, so I, I put in my junior year a wish list, basically. That's when we make the choice. Yeah. And we find out, if I remember correctly, the first semester of our senior year called first a year. But even before that, we we're basically screening different service options by spending the summer training with different service options. And from, from Navy, you can go submarines, uh, SWO, which is driving ships, Marine Corps, pilot, and then all the, the special uh, options like SEAL or EOD. And I actually came into the Naval Academy thinking that I wanted to be a pilot. And most of that was just because I thought it looked cool, you get to fly planes. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I really didn't think that much about it. And whenever I met a Marine, I thought um, this is just like some square dude. And uh, one summer, I think it was my second summer, so right after my sophomore year, I spent a summer, or three weeks, at Leatherneck, which is basically an introduction to the Marine Corps. Yeah. And I honestly fell in love with just the, the culture. It is this beautiful mixture of crude and highly professional and highly capable people. And that was exactly my personality. There was uh, one guy, uh, Captain Wisecarver, was just who I wanted to be. Not, I didn't want to be a man, but I wanted to be like yeah. him as a Marine. Yeah. Um, Marines tend to have this like Marine first attitude, right? Well, I mean, we're arrogant. Okay. And I think it yeah. just kind of comes with the territory. I don't know. Uh, no, I yeah. mean like uh, like you're marine first, and then you do, and then your job happens to be this, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Arrogant aside, arrogance aside, okay. yes. Um, you do have commercials yeah, where you fight dragons with swords, though. <laughs> yeah. I never encountered yes. any of that. Well, I mean, you have to be a marine. You know, <laughs> they save that stuff for us. Um, it is it is a marine first attitude. Everyone's a marine. Everyone's a rifleman first. And, and then your job. And I think that spoke to me as well. Yeah. Um, everyone, every Marine officer goes through basic school after, well, after I graduated from the Naval Academy. 
but anyone coming out of just regular college would also do that. And so everyone it starts off with the same foundation. And I think that gives us a, a, a really strong culture and sense of purpose and, and why we're all in, in something together. Do you think you would have uh, do you think you would have served if it wasn't for 9/11? I think so. Yeah. So actually I I was a late bloomer in high school. I wasn't super focused and I realized I wanted to go to the Naval Academy my junior year of high school and only because I had been to a soccer camp there and realized that I might not do much with my life if I went to regular college. So I thought, okay, I'm adventurous, I could use a little structure. So I started the application process and I was taking my physical fitness test on 9-11 and my, I, my gym teacher was facilitating it and I was doing uh, the shuttle run and the push-ups yeah. and someone says a plane flew into a tower yeah. and I think I don't know, like most teenagers at that time, you don't immediately think terrorist. And I thought, well, that's really dumb. And that's not great, but why is everyone making such a big deal about it? And then after my test go up and see that, okay, this is you know, really serious. I wouldn't say that it resonated with me like it resonated with a lot of people. It still felt very distant. I was in Baltimore, Maryland. It just didn't, it didn't strike me. Um, that I needed to go serve my country. I think it made me feel proud that that's the direction I was going anyway. Oh, yeah. I remember I was in high school too, and I remember like, uh, you know, Tuesday morning. I think it was a Tuesday, right? Yeah. So it became like your future became different at that moment. Sure did. Yeah. yeah. I, th I think it made me more excited. I definitely sought adventure, and I, I think my my passion for serving my country really grew out of being in the service, but it, I, I know I already said this, but I, I think it made me more proud that I was choosing that direction um, yeah. than anything. Yeah. Did you uh, did you end up playing soccer at uh, Navy? Uh, no. <laughs> no. I had my my heart set on playing varsity soccer at Navy, and uh, I got cut at the end of plebe summer. They, yeah. I just wasn't good enough, so I thought, okay, I uh, will find another sport. And because I come from Baltimore, Maryland, uh, home of lacrosse, right. I had a little bit of lacrosse experience. I went and tried out for the club lacrosse team. And mind you, I was, for a lacrosse player in Maryland, I was subpar. But because I was in the mecca of lacrosse, I was actually pretty good. So I went and tried out and made the team. It is club, so you, pretty much if you just show up every day, you make it. But I got, I got to play from freshman to senior year. And I was, I'm really happy that I got to play club lacrosse instead of varsity soccer because varsity is just a whole different world. I mean, that's like your life the entire time and club gave me the chance to also um, explore a lot of different aspects of the academy. Yeah. What, uh, what, what, were some, what was some of the stuff that it freed you up to do? Like, I mean, we, we actually had a West Pointer on last episode. Uh, and oh. you know, he talked about like- Oh, Sam. Yeah. yeah, Sam. Yeah, yeah. And so he, yeah. you know, he talked about like balancing just a ton of stuff while you're there because it's not just college. I mean, you have, you know, you have the core stuff uh, to do and then you have everything above and beyond, you know, the military. Uh, I don't even know what you call it, like the, the military culture that supersedes a lot of life at college, right? Yes. Well, I did not get out of the marching that we had to do during lunch in our big housing facility called Bancroft Hall. If you live in the front of Bancroft Hall, every day for lunch, you have to line up and march in with the, the Navy band, which is great for tourists. It's horrible when you're running from class just to do that because you want to eat. Um, but band? I did get to do that because, oh yeah. Are they yeah. like making up for the poor food that they play music to get you pumped <laughs> up <guess>. for it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, at that point, you know, why not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good ambiance. Yeah, yeah. and it, it also allowed me to be social with the people in, in my company. So just like every service academy, we're divided into companies 
that are equally split between freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior. And I got to know those people. I got to have leadership positions and do the social slash training activities we would do on the weekends. And those formed lifetime bonds beyond my sports team, which I think is a really nice balance when your whole life is just being at a military college. So, so what's the difference? Like, you know, some are sports in college and, and you, got, you guys were at a military academy. Like, is it very similar to the college experience or like uh-huh. afterwards? What do, you, what do you know about the differences? Well, I, I don't think freshman year at regular college, people have to sign in at night before they go to bed. <laughs> so I did that a lot. And um, as a freshman, I wasn't allowed to go out unless I was granted liberty and I had to go out in my uniform, which, ugh, I mean, especially as a girl, you're wearing white dress pants and a white blouse and some weird hat. And then as a freshman, my hair is like a, like a bowl cut. Mm. So, um, it's I like, a like Saturday Night yeah, Fever. <laughs> Like, hey, you guys can go out. I'm like, mm, I'm all right. I think I'll stay yeah. in for a year. <laughs> you know? um, but I was lucky because the year I went, I went in 2003 to Navy, and we started winning football games. And as absurd as it sounds, that meant that as a freshman, I got a ton of liberty. So we were kind of viewed as the, the freedom class, if you will. Mm. I was enlisted, yeah. so I never got into like the football stuff or the rivalries. Like yeah. I, you know, yeah. People talk about it. I'm like, Honestly, yeah, yeah, okay. All right. I like to talk smack about it, because um, I, but I don't really follow football. Those are the best type of smack talkers, the the uninformed. Because, <laughs> right? Like it's irrational anyway. So why would why would you need yeah. to inform inform yourself about the sport? You just go out there, right? Fair. Yeah. Yeah. So you. You get to the Marines and you're an engineer officer, right? Yeah. The reason I became a combat engineer officer is because it's the closest I could get to infantry. Even though I went to the Naval Academy, I honestly had no idea that I was not allowed to do that when I joined the Marine Corps. Really? And yeah. So, um, and I'll get into combat engineering um, because I loved it. I thought it was a great MOS for me, uh, military occupational specialty. Yeah. But it was not my initial choice. I loved the culture of the Marine Corps, wanted to be just like that knuckle-dragging Marine, you know, getting into a firefight. And then get to basic school, and we have kind of a networking night where representatives from each of the specialties come out and we kind of, we socialize. It's it's a little bit like a professional networking session. You know, what, what do you do? Right. Um, and it would be like business uh, the, school recruiting, but slightly exactly, different. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, probably not as many past or derbs, yeah. but uh, <laughs> similar. So, so um, the, the introduction to this networking session is here are all the MOSs that the Marine Corps offers, you know, this long list. And then they say, women can do 85% of the MOSs. And I was like, oh, sweet, cool. Um, except all of combat arms. And I was like, what the fuck? And so like, yeah, you can do commo, you can do logo, logistics, um, you can do adjutant. And I was like, well, what is an adjutant? That sounds like cool. I still don't know what an adjutant like, is. It's administrative affairs. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. OK. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you can do a, a number of other things like that. And I thought, well, what the hell can I do that is not paperwork? Nothing against anybody who wants to do any of those specialties. They're all important, and a lot of people want to do them. I just did not. Yeah. And so the only thing on the list that had anything to do with like guns and explosives was combat engineering. And so I was laser focused on getting that. So through basic school, I tried to find ways, oddly enough, like networking, to show that that's what I wanted to do. And part of it is just to earn the respect of your peers, show that you're capable, but also on demolition day, you better raise your hand and say you want to do everything there, which of course I did, but you got to really show that that's exactly what you want to do. So I raised my hand, you know, I want to like set up, I want to crawl out and set up the Claymore mine 
um, yeah. and do it correctly. And then I want to take the C4 ball and place it and everything. And um, luckily enough, that's what I got. I was really fortunate. When, uh, when did Marines start letting women in infantry? December 2015. Okay. Which was uh, five months after I got out. Oh, man. Yeah. But you got some, I mean, you got some good experience too, though, oh, right? Yeah, because I mean, once you once you deploy, really, if you're combat arms job, you just do what needs to be done, right? I was really lucky. I got to do a lot of cool shit. I had a great company commander when I deployed to Afghanistan, and yeah. he let me get out there. The awesome thing is that we were based somewhere where I got to just drive my platoon around and support a bunch of infantry platoons and yeah. repair their roads. Um, make them safer and, and less likely to, to be hit by IEDs and also make their positions safer. So I did actually get to get out there and basically just not shower for six months and, and had a blast. Yeah. So did you have a company that was like rendering safe uh, routes? Could you take us a little into more of like a, what an engineer company or platoon does out there? Basically you're putting up barriers so the enemy can't get to you, and you're making paths so that you can get to the enemy. Vehicles were getting stuck, and uh, a lot of the, I don't know how to say this in like civilian terms, but like the, the positions, the places that people were sleeping and eating were not entirely safe, and then they were also not hygienic. So what my platoon would come in and do is we would repair a, a, basically a dirt road that had been blown up and that vehicles, up-armored vehicles were so heavy, they destroyed the, the routes, we would do road construction there. Yeah. And you basically dig into the ground with heavy equipment until you hit gravel. So there's like a fun fact, there's gravel in the earth and you dig it out and you lay it on the path that you want. Yeah. <laughs> and then you take, a, you take uh, a truck with water and you pour water on it and then you put another layer and then you compact it and that is essentially like the most basic form of a road that's what we did so you know it's not some of that's not glorious uh, or glamorous um, yeah. and then we would do some extra things actually all the credit to my marines um, because they would go in and say you know make make friends with the their their peers and see what's wrong. A lot of people were just saying, I am so tired of sleeping in the dirt. And so they said, yeah, we have some extra, we have some extra wood. We can build you like a little platform so you can sleep on that. And that's a game changer. Yeah. Just makes your life so much better for that, that six months you're out there. Uh, improve the quality of people's lives, made them safer and easier to get the job done. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. What, a, what, if you can remember like what would be one of the more creative things that you either did or saw when you were deployed to make it happen as an engineer? So it wasn't me. I was, I was an officer. I know, yeah. I okay. do a lot of supervising. Yeah, uh, hold it against you. Yeah, thank you. Um, we had uh, heavy equipment that came along with us and one of my Marines basically kept us operational. Pure ingenuity and a few MRE boxes. We have these cardboard boxes laying around. We had one backhoe, which is like this dynamic piece of heavy equipment that you can scoop dirt out and spin around and all this stuff. And uh, a pipe broke on it. And we're not near much support. So when that thing went down, we're basically not operational. And we're calling back to the main base and they say they, they can't they maybe don't have a part, it might take days to get it out there. And so one of my Marines came up to me and, and my platoon sergeant, who's like my right-hand man and basically like life advisor out there. And he suggested that he could make a pipe out of cardboard. And that pipe made the backhoe work. He made a cardboard pipe to repair a backhoe and we were just back up. Um, I think it lasted for like a couple days until we got the part out, but I was just blown away. And I think that has stuck with me since then because it made me realize how important it is to, to empower people that work for you as teammates and not just tell people what to do. Yeah, I remember one of our mechanics, like uh, yeah. one of our Humvees wouldn't start and our mechanic took a bunch of gloves and stuffed them in the tailpipe 
and it started and blew the gloves out and he goes okay we're ready to go <laughs> and that's like still to go. this day i don't know what the hell he did or why it worked uh but it's like uh, yeah okay i guess i don't know what that magic was but we're ready to go now another very random story which i just kind of want to share yeah is um we really got into buying goats and eating them um, just because we were tired of the same preservative filled food that we were having. Yeah. I have this vivid memory of my interpreter buying a goat, negotiating with this kid. And he comes back, he's like, all right, I can make the meat for you all, but I have to return the rest of the goat to the kid. I was like, okay, all right, not my town. So whatever you want to do. So he made this fantastic meal. He showed us how to slaughter a goat, cooked it in this beautiful pot that he had basically rented from the kid. We had a great meal. We're all sitting fat and happy. And this kid comes back up yelling. He's like, okay, where are my parts? And so um, he hands the kid this sliced up goat. And the kid is trying to sling this like slaughtered animal to take home to his parents. And he's struggling the whole way. And then the interpreter is like, this is ridiculous. I'm like, yeah, well, it, it is, but for many reasons, not just the fact that this kid can't figure out how to carry the dead goat. Um, he takes an MRE box, yet again, then stuffs the goat in to the MRE box, and just like the little hooves are sticking up, mm. and hands it to the kid and he walks off. I was like, It's that? like uh, getting the tinfoil <laughs> swan from the uh, restaurant. Exactly. Um, and that, it just sticks with me, you know? And I, I, I don't know if that like gave me an appreciation for my life or just that life is weird. Um, yeah. You don't have to eat like a, a <laughs> goat spares? No. <laughs> okay. Not anymore. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Hi everyone, we'd like to take a minute of your time to talk about two great nonprofit organizations. You've heard me talk about the Coast to Coast Foundation for a few months now, and the ride is finally here. The Coast to Coast Foundation was founded in honor of Sergeant First Class Ryan Savard of 3rd Special Forces Group and U.S. Special Operations Command. It helps wounded Special Operations veterans close the financial gap between their lasting medical needs and what's traditionally covered. The Foundation's annual cross-country motorcycle ride, the Ride for the Fallen, stops in more than a dozen cities across the country to strengthen communities and raise funds. This year's ride will start on August 27th, just over a week from now, so make sure you're following them on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at CXC Foundation, or directly on the website at coastxcoast.org. There's even a brand new web store full of swag for you. All proceeds from the Coast to Coast Foundation go to assisting veterans in their recovery from combat and service-related injuries. Celebrate, remember, honor, get involved. Small Steps in Speech was founded in honor of Staff Sergeant Mark Small, Mark with a C, of 3rd Special Forces Group, U.S. Army. It helps children with speech and language disorders get therapies, treatments, and devices needed to improve their communication skills. As a Special Forces medic, Mark selflessly cared for many sick people, a number of whom were children. More than a decade later, he still serves as the inspiration for this foundation. To find out more, visit smallstepsinspeech.org. You can visit them on Facebook or Instagram at smallstepsinspeech or Twitter at ssinspeech. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the show. So tell people other than me, I guess, tell our listeners what's Sapper School. Okay, Sapper School is an army school for combat engineers. Yeah. It's 27 days straight of leadership and engineer training and, and testing. Essentially, it's a gauntlet to see if you are a legitimate engineer and come out the other side. With it's like tough though. It's regarded as yeah. one of the, tough, the tougher, uh, more grueling military courses, right? It sure is. So Sapper School is basically, it's kind of like, it's trying to be the ranger school for combat engineers, I think, yeah. if, to put it in perspective. And so it's like pretty competitive uh, to get there. Once you pass sapper school, you're like, um, you know, looked at as like a leader in your field. Yeah, and I think especially, so I was an exchange student at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, an army base for engineer captain's career course, which is a school for officers to continue to advance professionally yeah. and 
While I was there, I learned that Sapper School was conducted at Fort Leonard Wood. And so I thought, well, I definitely need to go there. This does align with my desire to get into something, I guess, as, as badass and as combat arms oriented as I possibly could. And yeah. I could convince my, my job tracker in the service. We call it the monitor. I don't know what they call it in the army. Um, but I had to convince basically the people that manage jobs that, that I had a reason to go. So I took the prerequisite tests and got my Marine leadership to sign off on it and got in. Yeah. So you were the, uh, I read up, I read an article, F. So you're the first female Marine to complete Army Sapper School. You're the first Marine to be an honor graduate. And at the time you passed in 2012, you were the 53rd woman to pass a school that had been around since 1985? Yes. That's pretty impressive. You also said, to sort of echo our point from earlier, so you said you were, you were proud to represent the Marines, not, not just a, as a woman, but as a Marine. Right. Uh, so. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, that's been a, you know, being a female, I guess the female topic just kind of happens to come up. Yeah. And I aspire for it to eventually be a non-issue. Right. So everything I've done in my career was about trying to earn respect as a, as a Marine and as an officer first. And uh, I, I'm very proud to be a female. I, I don't have any issues with that, but yeah. I, I don't want it to be a reflection of who I am in terms of competency or assessing what my, my capabilities are, I suppose. So, okay. Yeah. 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 So you're, so you're um, in the like, don't make a big deal out of it camp of equality. Yeah. Okay. Yes, and I certainly have controversial issues. And on this note, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple of things about Sapper School. So it is the Army, and I'm a Marine, and so I one, it's it's not not really my home. I'm being welcomed into a culture, and at the same time, I'm also trying to earn respect and and kind of cut out this the the female aspect. So, what does that mean in terms of how I conduct myself? I actually am quite thoughtful about this. And this is gonna maybe weird some people out, but it, it comes all the way down to even how you think about your underwear. So we're living in, for Sapper School, it's 27 days, and you're living all in the same room, basically. And everyone is changing in front of one another. And you know, what's the, what's the point of being there with other, with other service members? Well, I'm not there to find a date. I'm there to be with, with my brothers and sisters. And so everything is black. Black underwear, black sports bras. And there's nothing, there's no like femininity tied into that. And that is something that I think is really important in terms of messaging that I'm here to be respected and to be seen as an equal. Some people might disagree with me, but I wasn't there to be cute. So coming out of Sapper School, I developed a friendship with, I think he's like a, gosh, I don't know, he's probably like a sergeant first class or something now, but he became one of, one of my longtime friends who actually need to reach out to him. But we were basically battle buddies throughout Sapper School. And he and I just clicked. We were an awesome team together and it had nothing to do with any sort of like personal relations. We were comrades in arms. And when, after graduation, after like the ceremony where they announced who the honor graduate is, he gave me one of his, his name tags and one of his army hats and I gave him one of mine. And I still have it. And that just, honestly, that meant the world to me because that meant, that meant respect. And that's really carried through for me. No. Do you think that level of maturity is present across the military? Not entirely. Yeah. I think. Are we getting there? I do. I think. Uh, yeah. Are we getting there? Yes. Okay. We are definitely getting there. I think the challenge is we think we're further ahead than we really are. Not everyone agrees where we should go, and a lot of the barriers to maybe 
you know, in Katie's world, pure equality, is that these problems are, are systemic and, and came out of history. Not one person said, okay, only, only white dudes can, can serve. Okay, now, you know, now we can let in African-Americans. Okay, now we can let in women. I mean, these are, these are tied into our roots. And yeah. so changing that is, is really tough. So I think we're on the right track. And that was another challenge for me at boot camp. So <laughs> I went from sapper school yeah. where, man, there's no filter there. It's, it's a, I'm sure it's a lot more PC than maybe it used to be back in, you know, whatever the army was in like the 80s. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it was a fairly unfiltered culture. And then I went right into an all-female battalion at Paris Island. It was a little bit of a culture shock for me quite different and personally challenging because I didn't agree with it. So, okay, so at boot camp in the Marines, they segregate by gender? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so this may, this may be changing now. I was actually, I had the kind of the privilege of helping be a part of questioning how we were doing training. Because that is like what you just described from Sapper School and then going right into this situation is such a 180. Oh, man. You, you had to be, like, furious. <laughs> yeah, I was, and, you know, I wanted to be open-minded, for sure. But it was being on the drill field, which I, maybe you remember from boot camp, is really about, it's about appearance as much as it is about performance. So drill instructors need to look their best. They're always having the, the tightly bound uniforms, there's, you know, nothing's out of place. And for female drill instructors, that also means having nice nails and really good hair and maybe like a little bit of makeup. And I was like, holy jeez, like what am nails? I doing? <laughs> yeah. And it's certainly no criticism, but it was overwhelming to mm. just try to make that switch. So it was, it was a lot. And so there's one battalion of female recruits and then three battalions in South Carolina of male recruits. And I think the challenge with that is, it's not inherently a problem, but imagine there are four groups um, and the, the, one, the one that's different says, hey, like, we have a problem. They're like, well, it's the different group that keeps complaining, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. I can't help that I'm female. We're all stuck together. It's not just because I'm a female. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> is uh, is 25% of the Marines, uh, what's like the percentage of women in the Marines overall? It's, it's like 7%. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty oh. tiny. So the three so other battalions are probably outsized too. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So that's a, it's a logistical challenge. You know, even if you wanted to fully integrate and thinking about how to make that work, the throughput in terms of volume and rotations is so much higher with the male battalions. And trying to ramp up recruiting is even challenging because yeah. that also requires a lot of culture to change outside of the military to increase that, that percentage. Right, you people being willing to send their daughters into the armed services, right? That's Absolutely. a big thing, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. it's kind of scary, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you're having to connect with the generation—not uh, even just the current generation—to make them, you know, to to like increase their willingness to serve. But you're trying to aim a generation higher to say, okay, yeah, we feel comfortable with our daughter serving, right? Yeah, no. and you know, so there's a lot of second and third order effects of even considering that for sure. Yeah. But all in all, I think we're I think we're heading in the right direction. It's it's going to take time and patience and remembering that we're not quite there. What's it like commanding a uh, base, well, I mean, we call it base training, but like a boot camp unit? Because drill sergeants are just like a bunch of like unleashed bulldogs, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, sure you, I'm, yeah. I'm sure like when you, when you have your own meetings with them, it's very professional. But I mean, just what is it like seeing, you know, a hundred brand new faces that probably look 16 years old? drenched in sweat and covered in sand and everything. I think the seeing the recruits is exciting, but not, I mean, they just look like a bunch of little kids. 
and it's incredible how much power a drill instructor wields. From the second that they introduce themselves, they could make those recruits do anything. Yep. And when the drill instructor learns that, they have to be reminded, which is my job, that okay. we're, we're, remember, these are, these are our boundaries. Because it becomes, it's, it's, an, it's incredibly rewarding. And the, the team of Marines that were drill instructors for my, we call it a series, but it's basically a platoon. They were, they were incredible. But they, they, like all high achievers, they want to push themselves to the limit and then they want to push the recruits to the limit. So it's it's like, you know, you oh you ran that fast? Okay, go faster. And then yeah. you think you can you can do this well? Okay, now do this even even better. And it's not quite right. And I'm gonna yell at you, and then I'm gonna yell at you again, and then I'm as a drill instructor, uh, we had to monitor how many hours they worked because they just don't keep track of their own, I guess, need for sleep. Oh and yeah, it's just a 24 so, seven job. And they've um, all been deployed and had a real 24 seven job. Yes, yeah. and this is building, I mean, it, it's building your uh, successors. So I think there's a lot of pride and, and passion put into that. And, and seeing that from start to finish is incredible. 70 training days and those recruits go from these sloppy little kids and turn into these professionals who are, you know, the, the Marine Corps him is like running through their veins, basically. Yeah. And that's because of the drill instructors, you know? There are 160, I think 168 hours in a week. And, you know, I, I have to cut off a drill instructor at 120 hours. That's like how much they're working. <laughs> and it's insane, you know? Yeah. Uh, when someone tells me they worked a 60 hour a week, I'm like, oh, uh, well, you know, take a nap. <laughs> You're five foot two, so man or woman, do people prejudge you? And and how quick how quickly does that come to an end after they meet you? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think I for I forget that that's my height. I've had to accept that I am a short, cute female, um, yeah. <laughs> which like. It, it conflicts with my desire oh to be the the marine officer on the poster. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when someone meets me, I'm not a total jerk about it, but it does require a reminder that I have to maintain. When I first walked into my, my first platoon at Camp Pendleton, one of my marines offered to carry my bags for me. And then I had to tell them no. <laughs> I can imagine uh, how that um, went. Yeah. But you know what? They don't, no, nobody, if you come from training in San Diego, you've never even seen a female before, maybe. Yeah. And so they're like, oh, like, are you here to like serve us lunch or something? You know, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then I do remember we were doing Marine Corps martial arts training, which is just part of training in the Marine Corps. And one of my corporals said, to me, ma'am, I, I can't punch you. I immediately asked why. And he said, because you're a female. And I said, you need to stop thinking of me as a female and punch me like I'm a goddamn Marine. And then he did, which also sometimes bit me in the ass because I challenged one of our biggest sergeants to pugil sticks, which is yeah. like throwing these unwieldy bar like things American at Gladiator. each other. Yes, thank you, American Gladiator. And, oh man, like he like toyed around with me a little bit. This guy is, was yoked. I mean, six foot, looks like he's a bodybuilder. And we sparred a little bit. And then he just, you know, like what, like he didn't even move. It was like, he just like flicked his, his thumb and I just flew and I was down. And yeah, I think I couldn't breathe for a couple of minutes. Yeah. yeah. So that was fun kind of bit me in the ass, but I, I think, you know, that's, that's what you do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So now getting into talking about like, it's time to leave the military, right? So on the last episode, which actually like, thanks Sam for helping us out. Sam kind of categorized military exits into three, right? And he said, there's people that like get out 
and have no idea what they're doing. They just need to leave uh, for some reason and figure it out. There's people who plan sort of like a transitionary phase, which could be something like business school, give yourself a couple years to get some education, figure it out and plan your next move. Uh, and then there's people mm-hmm. who start thinking about it well before their exit point and have you know like a plan developed. So yeah. do, you, do you fit into one of those or, or is there another one? I think I, I mostly fit into number two. I won't try to add another one. Okay. I. And I had gotten, I was married at the time, and my husband was also a Marine, and he had already gotten out and was, was going to business school. I was on the fence about getting out, and so we, we had to, we actually, well, I put up a whiteboard, and I was like, <laughs> here are three options. It's a very officerly thing uh, to do of you. <laughs> I admit, I actually bought a whiteboard to do this, and he was just not thrilled about it. And so I, I put up three options, and it's like, okay, I get out now, I don't get any GI Bill, or I get like 70%. I stay in like two more years, I get 100% GI Bill, and we're apart for a little bit longer. Or option three, I stay in, and you know maybe I get to do another cool tour, and he, we, we had already discussed that we had both agreed to get out. So number three was just kind of like just testing the waters and yeah. he did not like that. So uh, I was like, okay, just kidding. Um, let's look at one and two. So anyway, I stayed in until eight years and I honestly knew I wanted to go to grad school but I hadn't considered really what I wanted to do next because I had felt so much purpose. You know, I, like I said, I went in, I was excited for the adventure and for the structure. And I was leaving with so much passion and purpose that I was afraid of what that was gonna be like. I was afraid about not being able to drive onto base because I didn't have a military ID anymore. It's like, why is that creating anxiety for me? It's a lot of your identity tied into that. Yeah, and so, when I got out, I decided, it, with, with my husband, we had both agreed that while he was finishing his degree, I would take a year off and just do some things that I wanted to do and figure out what my next role was going to be. Okay. Which a lot of people are really afraid to have a gap in their resume, and I think it's one of the best things I did. We call it fun employed. Yes, right? So on the list was make coffee, read some books, get certified as a yoga instructor, and then figure out what I was gonna do. Mm-hmm. So knocked out the first three, and taking the yoga course, having just come out of Paris Island, was just a challenge to who I was gonna be as a civilian. There was a, a s- strong difference between the personality that was coming to take a 200 hour yoga course. 21 days, so almost as long as Sapper School. Um, <laughs> Not quite as rigorous. Was there that but much spirituality in Sapper School? <laughs> yeah. I think um, I, I didn't know who I was going to be, and I just loved being a Marine. And then people showing up late, um, unprepared, just really <laughs> irritated the shit out of me, and I wasn't even the teacher. <laughs> yeah. Let me back up one sec here, which is taking the yoga course, allowed me to do some internal reflection and make it okay. I think a big thing in the military is that we're not, we're not great at admitting our vulnerabilities because we perceive it as being a weak human instead of being able to say, okay, here's where I need to improve and, and I can tell that to somebody and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And the yoga course allowed me to start doing that. Right, and so you think if you don't fit, in the military, if you don't fit a certain way, it's a shortcoming, it's not just a point of individuality. Yeah, I can yeah. see that, yeah. And, and just trying to, to always walk tall, which I am 5'2", but, um, you know, you work, I, honestly. I'm sure you walk pretty tall, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm very tall. You get all I, of that 5'2". <laughs> I used to joke, I think I found it more funny than most people, but, you know, I'm, physically I'm 5'2", but mentally I'm 6'2". I tried to walk tall, but I, I, was, I didn't want to show any vulnerability. 
And so uh, that, that helped me. And from there, I, with the actually encouragement of my husband at the time, I, I realized that business school and policy school would be, would be the approach I wanted to take to figure out what was next. Initially, and I think that this, I don't know if this is common, but initially I wanted to see if I could get into the State Department, into the CIA, or any other type, uh, you know, could, could I be a foreign service officer? How can I still sink my teeth into service? Yeah. And it was all tied to missing the Marine Corps. Right. And so I applied, I got into business school, we moved to New York City, and I think that was just another transition business school was one of the best things I've ever done and I am so grateful that I had my partner at the time who encouraged me to do that but having spent a year out of the Marine Corps um, kind of on my own I still was very much a Marine and I think that really reflected in my in my style (laughs) your interpersonal style Uh, no my my clothes (laughs) oh your clothing style my style okay my style, yes. And look, New York is like, it's super trendy. Yeah. And I'm showing up and I am wearing what looks like I just came out of boot camp. Like I've got my, my boot cut jeans. Um, I'm wearing loafers. Tucked in polo shirt or something like that? <laughs> pretty close, pretty close. That's very Marine uh, look, it- I gotta say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did not have a buzz cut, but I grew that out, fortunately. But I did, I, <laughs> I don't know why, one of my really good friends now, she looked at me the first day we met, and she's like, what the hell are you wearing? And maybe that's why we're friends, but <laughs> I struggled a lot to just kind of feel like I felt like a civilian for my first, my first year and a half of, of a three-year graduate degree program. So you did um, you yeah. uh, you did a dual graduate degree. So you did SIPO, which is Columbia's uh, International Affairs School, one of the top ones mm-hmm. uh, out there, and Columbia Business School, which is also, you know, ranked as one of the top business schools. You worked for the Tamer Center for Social Enterprise. I looked it up. Their definition for social enterprise is the application of business methods to solve social problems. So how did how did you end up there? Is that where you were aiming, like that kind of space? The, the actual center is not where I was aiming, but doing more good in the world is definitely where I was aiming. And I think that that's how I realized I could transition into a civilian and be happy which was finding other ways to, to, to be purposeful. The environment is really my main focus, and I think my, my, my big North Star is potentially entrepreneurship and recycling, um, TBD at the moment. Um, okay. I have some friends I should introduce you to. They came up with some pretty please. Uh, yeah, interesting, um, interesting ideas back in business school. Waste management awesome. and recycling. It's like the, the stuff that doesn't sound sexy, but actually makes a really big impact. It sure does. And that's always been something I've done. Every roommate I've ever had has lost their mind with how I manage trash. So it's always been something. I, at, at basic school in Quantico, Virginia, I was driving my recyclables at like 11 p.m. at night to a dumpster that was off base because there was no recycling. But um, that's just like a minor detail because it's it's been a part of me for my entire adult life. It sounds like a pretty impactful detail to me, right? It's like the small yeah. things, it's the small things that people do that are outside the norm that really give you insight to mm-hmm. what's important to them. Yeah, that's actually, that's a great point. And and so really the way I approached graduate school is is I wanted to I wanted to be open to what opportunities were out there, which is why I wanted to go to school. I didn't want to have a direction picked out already. Mm-hmm. I knew I didn't want to follow traditional tracks. I think some of the traditional business school tracks are quite nice because they're similar to the military. Banking, Investment banking is really nice because you know, okay, I, I work this many years, I get the salary, and then I continue to move up. And, and I think that's really nice, and some people yeah. love it. I, Very linear I knew that career that, growth. Exactly. And a great 
financial reward, especially compared to what you might get staying in the service. Yeah. So I, I resisted that for my first two years and I went to a panel that was talking about just some sort of impact internship. And as, as a, the last five minutes of the panel, one of the panelists says, oh, by the way, we're also hired to recruit for the National Park Service Business Plan Internship. And my ears perked up. It's like, what? what? What is that? Hi, everyone. We're here for a quick interruption on how to support the show. If you're new, please subscribe, rate, and review. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. Hit that subscribe button to get our latest episodes every two weeks. We're also grateful if you go ahead and share us directly with your friends and colleagues. If you want to engage in the podcast, you can find everything about us on thankyounowwhat.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at thankyounowwhat. And you can always get in touch directly by emailing thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. If you really like what we're doing here and you would like to share the cost of doing business with us, there are a couple options. You can give a one-time donation via the PayPal link on our website. You can also find a Patreon link on our website, patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. There, you can subscribe to give a fixed amount per episode, even if it's just a dollar. Please know that Ben and I are volunteering our time and effort and that all net proceeds from this podcast will be redirected to nonprofits that support veterans as soon as we pay for things like hosting, software, or equipment. You can also choose to give directly to the nonprofits we feature, which is just as good. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, it's been going on for about 20 years. Uh, the Park Service hires about 20 business school students and policy school students generally to work in the parks over the summer and do some, some business skills, like you mentioned, to solve some of the problems that the parks are, are facing. So I spent a summer living in Badlands, South Dakota with another intern. And as the superintendent there used to say, I got paid in sunsets. So you don't make anything, <laughs> but, but it is beautiful. Yeah. And I got to live in the park no, like I kid you not, every day there was a crazy storm and just a ton of rainbows. Wake up, there's deer outside. I mean, I was truly living the dream. And then I would go to the office and I would do business work. And that was also great. I had a chance to apply business school skills to something that I, I thought was really meaningful. Would yeah. you go back and do more park service stuff? I think I could. I really enjoyed it. And if you successfully complete the internship, and yeah. if the wildlife gives you a thumbs up when you're they, yeah, when yeah you're i made friends with a lot of deer a lot of yeah all the deer liked me so i got in nice. but basically you have two years after graduation to get a direct hire into the department of interior so i have that and i would i would definitely consider it i think for me i feel a draw to own my own time a little bit more which is why entrepreneurship is so interesting to me. And I think this was talked about actually with another one of your interviewees, which is it's there's this exciting piece of, of paving your own path and having that adventure and the risk associated with it. And even if you fail, you come out the other end knowing that that you got to take that on. So it's kind of it's kind of on the back burner a little bit, but I would definitely consider it. When yeah. you're looking at starting something new on your own, are you uh, are you looking for the right partner to do that with? Does it take two or does it take a team? Did you meet those kinds of people? Because Columbia's world-class program, I'm pretty sure that was probably very important to you to go to like that caliber of an institution based on what you had achieved previously. Did you meet those types of people there? I definitely did. I think I realized that I wanted to pursue this entrepreneurial dream of mine a little late in the game, but I made the, the connections that I can now reach out and see, see who's hungry to, to take this on with me. Yeah. I think it can take one, but I think two is a better balance. I do want to have this, this challenging adventure, but I also want to have a whole life which was another thing I realized leaving the Marine Corps is I, I don't always want to work 100 hour weeks, sleep four hours a night and not have fun. 
-hmm. So I think having a teammate in that and, and building out something methodically so that it's, it's more of a whole life has become incredibly important to me. And um, the other piece of this is also I, I got divorced halfway through my, my business degree and, and policy degree. So dealing with that first before I took on this next challenge yeah. became my priority. Well, talk about another 180. Yeah. So like you joined for structure, <laughs> you get out, but you maintain structure. Yeah. And now you've gotten rid of all structure. Right. Like, how's that? Yeah. Just cut everything loose. <laughs> it, it is. It's freeing and, and scary. Well, so how do yeah. you ground yourself? How, how are you moving forward? On a, on a very tactical level, practical daily life. I don't know if you guys are familiar with battle rhythms. For, for those non-military folk listening, a battle yeah, rhythm is... Yeah, bust out is... the whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah if, if only this was video, I could draw one out for you. I actually, I'm a big planner, and I like to create structure in my, in my calendar. So all the, all the big chunks that I want to accomplish in a week, I throw on my calendar, and I know what I have to do that week and I shift it around in blocks, but those blocks are already there. So that has created structure for me. And I even, you'll love this, I even schedule unstructured time. Um, because once I was leaving boot camp, man, oh, I didn't even know how to make time to, to just like let go. I was so Marine Corps, this is all I do. <laughs> so, it's good, it's been great. I think that's kind of kind of what I do. Yeah, that's that because like what I'm learning from guests as we keep doing this is there's something there's a link between endurance sports, entrepreneurship, and finding a way to structure oh. unstructured time and unstructured ventures. And so that's yeah. where um, I was curious to hear how you're dealing with that. You know, it's funny you say that. And listening, I I have listened to all of your interviews already. Really? Just so you know, and yeah, P1 listener, nice. <laughs> I relate a lot to Sam's passion for long distance running. I ran my first 50K in May 2018. I ran a 50 miler last year. What I had to learn to do though, and I think this was a big shift, is, is kind of drop the competitiveness piece of it. Because not everything in life has to be a competition. And that has been powerful for me. So I just go out and every, every Saturday now, I go for a long run and it can be between six to 13 miles, but it just kind of depends how I feel. So maybe there is some sort of connection there. I uh, ride a Peloton and they say uh, like, get rid of the, don't look at the leaderboard. It's impossible for me not to look at the leaderboard. And there's so many people that I'm like, you know, number 1200, I'm like, I've never been 1200. <laughs> okay, there's 70,000 people. It's yeah, tough, so. yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't ridden a Peloton, but I would I I know I would be right there trying yeah. to look at it as well. Which is why I just try to do it on my own now. <laughs> yeah. Do you run like uh, here in New York? Like you run the West Side mm -hmm. Highway or or Central Park? I'm a big fan of Central Park, so you can get it. You can get a solid two loops of the park in, or kind of mix it up. Maybe Reservoir, Bridal Path. I've actually done Morning Side Heights. Central Park, down to the bottom of Manhattan, over the Brooklyn Bridge, around Prospect Park, and then back. And that was kind of brutal. Do you have to stop at stoplights? Do you jog in place, <laughs> no, like, <laughs> at the <laughs> sidewalk? No, no, no. Just wear a sign. Ultra runner, stop for me. Yeah, well, one last thing on that, on the reservoir run, I mean, there's a good tie-in with Marathon Man. If you haven't seen that. Marathon Man? What is that? No. Marathon Man. Kinda. It's like an old Dustin Hoffman movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I need to see this. Okay. You also mentioned to us that you do volunteer work with uh, New Politics Leadership Academy, which is encouraging and enabling veterans to become elected officials or at least to get involved in government. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I think it's pretty much the gist of it. It's not to push people into into public service, yeah. but to give them a way to explore if that could be what they might consider as a second service. 
And that spoke to me because of this hole in my heart trying to find purpose. One of my friends in the Veterans Club at business school invited me to attend a workshop called Answering the Call, which is what New, New Politics Leadership Academy puts on. And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't want to go debate politics with a bunch of people. But that's not what it was about. It was about, again, internal reflection on what are you all about? And does, does public service in government and politics answer that? And how do I address that? And yeah. so I now facilitate that workshop called Answering the Call. And it's nonpartisan. They don't try to push you. What I really like about it is that for the veteran community, it gives us a chance to sit around a table and, again, be vulnerable in a way that we don't know how to be. And we have to create a personal leadership mission statement and a personal shadow mission statement. And the leadership mission statement probably resonates with most people, which is, who do I see myself as um, at my best self, living my life? But the shadow mission is about who am I when, I when I stop being my best self? Because we all have that. But coming to terms with that and realizing where we go is a huge way to, to recognize it and, and not become that. And I think that that's just beneficial for anyone coming out of a, a life transition. Is this like Freudian stuff, like the id, the ego, and the superego? Uh, probably. Uh, okay. the, the gentleman who helped create all of this programming has a doctorate in some sort of psychological type studies and leadership and how all this works yeah. together. So he yeah. could probably, <laughs> okay. but I, it does help. It helps That's a lot. like yeah. my super uninformed uh, take on uh, human psychology. <laughs> so th- thanks for teeing that up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they talk about, I read their website and looked at a couple of videos. Uh, they talk yeah. a lot about this term called servant leadership, which is like yeah. an incredibly popular hashtag on LinkedIn or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people probably misusing it. In your mind, what's a good example that would illustrate servant leadership? I think a good example of servant leadership is being in really tough situations and remembering the underlying why. The people I respected when I was in the service, my boss, when I was on a Navy ship, kept bringing all of these new missions that we had to plan for. And I was starting to get frustrated. And I was like, well, just, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, let's just not do this one as well because I'm, I'm tired. And she reminded me that that's not your job to decide that. Your job is to think about how important this is in the context of it, even when you're tired. I mean, she just like chewed me out and I deserved it, but she made me better to remember that it's never really just about like whether your feelings are hurt or if you're tired, it's about like the greater cause and you signed up for that. You signed up to say, even when I'm tired, even when I'm frustrated, I'm going to make a, a judgment for the right reasons, for, for the, the greater cause and not for my own comfort-based wants. Do you think that we have enough veterans in government right now? Are people engaged? Because you know, I have a lot of friends who just, they want to detach from it. and. Even when you're over fighting a war and you're detached from it, you just don't want to hear about it, you're just there to do your job, yeah. you know, at what point do people start getting more engaged? It's true. I mean, deploying, you just feel like you're a part of the, the mission and whatever the politics are, it, I, I didn't think about it either. Um, yeah. I just wanted to, to serve and, and have my team of Marines. Um, I think there needs to be a paradigm shift. I don't think there are enough veterans. I don't think that there are enough even if you get beyond veterans, like Peace Corps volunteers, Teach for America, I think those are great examples of people who are sacrificing something um, to serve a greater cause. And it's just a, it's, they're people who learn how to make decisions not just for selfish reasons. And I don't think we have enough of that. I don't think we have enough of it in a lot of parts of society. And 
I think it's going to take some dramatic change that is behind the scenes. Man, I wish I had. I don't have a really good answer. I think it's going to take a lot of people. Just you don't have to change. You don't have to like drive overwhelming change on this podcast. No, no, no. But I'm just trying. Uh, to, like I care a lot about it. Yeah. But so something that I think is important is ethical leadership and yeah. using good judgment for good reasons, even when it's hard. And something that I, I got to be a part of at business school was this this new course called Bridging the American Divide, and it was really about understanding as a future business leader how community and government are also interconnected with that. And so I think it's chipping away at the paradigms we have now to create new systems and ways of operating that are just not petty, <laughs> that are productive. Okay, so what do we see next from you? Entrepreneurship, government, what's coming up? All of the above. Yes, I want to do a lot of living. I did a lot of thinking about this, and I think my general theme is I want to peak at 95, and I really mean that. You know, I'm not like I'm, <laughs> I'm not like Matthew McConaughey uh, in Days and Confused, hanging out at high school, you know, <laughs> trying to pick up some some young football players. <laughs> yeah, I want to help make the world a better place. Right now, I still work at the Social Enterprise Center and I get to help other social entrepreneurs. And I'm gonna work on my own recycling thing. I'm gonna go live abroad for a little bit. Do I, I did decide to do a little bit of consulting myself. So I think that's gonna be exciting. And then hopefully pursue this entrepreneurship thing, so. You gotta keep us updated. I am personally very interested in any kind of businesses that my friends start up, follow them pretty closely, call them up and see how it's going. Any other vets that I have a connection with and just our population in general. Uh, I like seeing new things and people finding new ways to succeed, especially in a way that helps the greater good. So we will look out for you and, and I, you know, I hope the best for you. I'm sure Ben does too. Thanks. Yeah, I'll definitely keep you posted. Ben, what didn't we cover? I think we got it. Oh yeah? Okay. so. No one's watching Marathon Man. Uh, <laughs> it's a rule. I'm sorry to break your heart, Ben. It's only like a 40-year-old movie that people barely remember. It's at the Reservoir, Matt. Uh, what is that? Cent Central Park? Jackie Onassis, yeah. Central Park Reser Reservoir. Okay, so maybe watch it if you're running by the same place. All right, well, thanks uh, Thanks for being on with us, Katie. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And um, best of luck with this. This is incredible. Thanks for being a listener, too. Uh, it's great you, uh, it's, to listen to every episode before coming on. I mean, you're like an expert on the podcast already. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Katie running through your neighborhood or through our beautiful national parks. If you're interested in her work with New Politics Leadership Academy, you can check them out at newpoliticsacademy.org. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please go check out the Coast to Coast Foundation or Small Steps in Speech. For the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, follow us, and as always, join us next time on Thank You Now What. <laughs>